Yes, I did. So I packed it up and brought it back to the crib. Just a little something, show you how we live. Everybody want it, but it ain't that serious. Mm-hmm. That's that shit. So if you gon' do it, do it just like this. Wow, the crowd is. You don't see just how fly my style is. I don't see why I need a stylist when I shot so much I can speak Italian. I don't know, I just want it better for my kids. And I ain't saying we was from the projects, but every time I wanna lay away or deposit, my dad say when you see clothes, close your eyelids. We was sorta like Will Smith and his son. In the movie, I ain't talking about the rich ones. Cause every summer, he'll get some brand new hair brain scheme to get rich from. And I don't know what he did for dope, but he'll send me back to school with a new wardrobe and hey, hey, I think he did when he packed it up and brought it back to the crib. Just a little something, show you how we live. Anything I wanted, man, it seems so serious. Hey, hey. I gotta I love that Netflix documentary on Kanye West. Gotta love it, man. It's like a positive spin on a bipolar actor. Levy's such a positive effect. A media strategy turned as old as time. But at any rate, with the world delving further and further into the conflict of neighboring sovereign nations, last week we explored this conflict through the lens of black American civil rights connection. Well, this week, kind of giving a part two, I thought it was appropriate to take a further deep dive into the subject, but with analysis on how the color of war is laid at the forefront of how we as a world interpret the conflict. But what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm talking about a country that invaded a nation based on a false premise and on the ego of imperialistic power with the object of asserting its foothold in the region for the purposes of military position and protecting its outside forces. Oh, wait. You're not thinking that I'm referring to Russia invading Ukraine, are you? No, that's silly. I'm, of course, talking about U.S. invasion of the Middle East, particularly Afghanistan and Iraq. But I digress. I'm talking about a sovereign country that has bombed civilian homes, businesses, created human rights violations outlined by the Geneva Accords, and earmarking brutality that would make the starches of their supporters turn their stomach. All because they have cleared their God-given historical right at the nation's territory. Of course, the local people fighting this imperialistic regime with grit, determination, and homemade Molotov cocktails and other unsophisticated weaponry. Again, I'm asking you to please, please, please stop talking about, think I'm talking about Ukraine and Russia. I'm clearly addressing the Palestinian and Israeli conflict. But this does beg a question. Why is it when I frame conflicts in those particular terms, we are automatically assuming I'm addressing this hero nation of Ukraine and the big bad bear of Russia? Could it have anything to do with the fact of how the media controls the narrative and provides the talking points for Western powers and how they're interpreted and how they're even interpreted through the world as a power structure? Of course it does. But before we get into that, breaking news. President Macron of France released a statement that says Putin wants to take us back to the age of empires. Wait, what? Is this the same France that still maintains that 14 African states must use the franc of the uh, of? the French colonies in Africa as their currency, and maintain that 50% of those African nation assets must be deposited in the French central bank? Or is this the France that imposed the statistic debt on Haiti for its independence to the tune of $21 billion, with the last payment ending in 2004, thus crippling their economy and their ability to grow as a nation? No, it's not the same France who sold the Louisiana Purchase to America to help with that developing nation's westward expansion, all the while helping France fund their war with Haiti. 
Can't be the same France. As Shorty Loma said, must be two sides, or in this way, must be two separate Frances out there. Oh, well. Back to the regularly scheduled program. The ongoing conflict in Eurasia again shows that whiteness is not just an ethnicity, but the fluid power construct, a, power, a product of colonialism and Western ideals of perception. We do not frame conflicts in the idea of good versus evil, but rather power and white sovereignty. The media plays a big role in how we interpret nations and their role in history and conquering, where inclusion slash exclusion fluctuates largely according to the whims of the ruling white elite. White colonialism and imperialism itself can therefore be, therefore be understood as an ongoing, multi-layered ecological catastrophe that threatens the ultimately distinguished life on this earth. That's a fact. But it's how we are fed this information that makes these imperialistic ideals framed as either good or bad. Or in terms of humans fighting this battle on the ground, heroes, insurgents, freedom fighters, terrorists, etc., Literally, none of these issues are separate from one another. The imperialist wars are ongoing competition to monopolize natural resources while controlling human migration and territory. And the constant militarization of unending wars are directly tied into the framing of how we see war and people. We have to be able to take on the double standard that we apply to victims of war when they're white and European versus brown, black, Asian, or African. The hypocrisy is clearly readily apparent. After all, Hypocrisy is just a fancy word for a bipolar action. Just as last week, the media addressed this Ukraine-Russia conflict with amazement on how two white nations could participate in war with brutality and just uh, sadistic intentions. Never mind ignoring that Europe has been the starting place for for the transatlantic slave trade, two world wars, and a genocide of Jews across the continent, and of course territorial and ethnic cleansing around the world. Seeing how these world events are clearly interpreted really, interpreted really comes down to how the Western world wants you to consume their part in the hypocrisy. Do they see people fighting as unworthy of their rights and territories? Or do they see him as champion in their eyes? All right. Welcome to Uncultured Bias. My name is Kamara Williams. I am your host. On the show, we say culture is a matter of perspective and opinion. After all, culture is just another way, another way to say discovered. We are on culture, we are biased, we are black. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. If you're coming back and you're listening, again, thank you, thank you, thank you for continued support. We only ask that you share this program with your friends and family so we can grow the uncultured biased nation. Uh, give a shout out to our sponsors of My Compass Tax. Uh, you can reach them at 850-273-7193 or mycompasstax.com. Tax season's coming up, so definitely hit them up. If you're in the market for real estate, give it. KeystoneGlobalRealEstate.com, a call. You can uh, reach them at KeystoneGlobalRealEstate.com or at 407-680-8510. And, of course, if you're in the market for estate uh, planning, wills, trusts, probates, guardianships, um, please contact Smith & Williams Trial Group at 888-SWTG-LAW or 888-798-4529 or 321-872-7572. All right, or C. Williams at SWTGLaw.com or SWTGLaw.com. Brilliant. At this point, I am going to bring on my frat and friend, uh, Ahmad Abuznade. So, Ahmad, you still with me? Yes, sir. What's happening, good brother? What's going on, bro? What's going on, man? How you been? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. Last time we spoke, there was so much more going on. And, you know, um, it's an interesting moment for us to kind of recapture that conversation and continue. Um, I'm, I'm in a good place, man, and I'm happy to be um calling in from sunny miami florida <laughs> sunny miami florida well 
Yo, let's um, I mean, you know, let's talk about like wh- why are you in a good place? I mean, you know, this 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 doesn't go into the topic, but maybe it does. I just want to know. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, the last couple of years were rough on a lot of us. Um, you know, pandemic I think has created so many like uh, sub issues, if you will, in our lives, and we've had to deal with it. And it feels like, I mean, you know, we, we've kind of been an up and down, but it, it feels like we're trending towards the end of it. And and you know. In the same vein, you know, I've been at the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights for about a year and a half now since taking over as, as executive director. Yeah. And when I when I took over the org, we had, I think, probably like five, uh, I think, positions vacant, four or five positions vacant. Um, you know, we had to really rally to make sure that we raised that that year's ending budget. We didn't have a strategic plan because because the, the last one had expired. Um so I feel like I'm in a much better place, not just personally, but, but you know, uh, work-wise, the org is in a much better shape. And, um, you know, this last couple of years was uh, was a lot on us as a movement. And and I think, like, we're coming together today with to grapple with some of the questions that the movement is asking aloud um, at this very moment um, with all eyes glued on, on Russia and Ukraine. So happy to be here with you, good brother. Yeah, man. Uh, definitely want to talk about um, this, the uh, your movement, your organization, and the Palestinian um, perspective um, at some point in the program. Um, so I appreciate you uh, jumping on. Uh, so what I wanted to do is actually start off on the quote unquote color of war and how we interpret conflicts around the world. But sure. I'm going to start off with uh, this segment with a clip from uh, Nelson Mandela. So um, bear with me. Both of Bush as well as Tony Blair are undermining an idea which was sponsored by their predecessors. They do not care. Is it because the Secretary General of the United Nations is now a black man? They never did that when Secretary Generals were white. What is the lesson of them acting outside the United Nations? Are they saying any country which believes that they will not be able to get the support of the countries which have had are entitled to go outside the United Nations and to ignore it? Or are they saying we, the United Nations, are the only superpower in the world now. We can act as we like. Are they saying this is a lesson that we should follow? Or are they saying we are special? What we do should not be done by anybody. And if there is a country that has committed unspeakable atrocities in the world, it is the United States of America. They don't care. They don't care for the human for human beings. Fifty-seven years ago, when Japan was retreating on all fronts, they decided to drop the atom bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Killed a lot of innocent people who are still suffering from the effects of those bombs. 
those bombs were not aimed against the Japanese. They were aimed against the Soviet Union to say, look, this is the power that we have. If you dare oppose what we do, this is what is going to happen to you. Because they are so arrogant, they decided to kill innocent people in Japan who are still suffering from that. Who are they now to pretend that they are the policemen of the world? What I am condemning, what I'm condemning is that one power with a president who has no foresight, who cannot think properly, is now wanting to plunge the world into a holocaust. And I'm happy that the people of the world, especially those of the United States of America, are standing up and opposing their own president. I hope that that opposition will one day make him understand that he has made the greatest mistake of his life in trying to bring about carnage and uh, to police the world without any authority from the international body. It is something we have to condemn without reservation. Yo. Um, Ahmad? Yes, sir. Uh, I know that was a long clip, but I, I, <laughs> I find it hard always to cut off uh, the... Uh, incredible Nelson Mandela, especially when he's getting into his, his bag. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I just, I, I find that clip like fascinating on so many different levels, man, because of course that clip was done back in early 2000 when addressing, or t- uh, 2002 when addressing America's um, plunging into, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. But remove like, President Bush and put President Putin in it, remove America and put Russia. And it's like, you're almost talking about the same thing. Like, I mean, did you, did did you feel that or did you track that? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, person, you know, Nelson Mandela and, and, you know, a lot of the folks that we lost over the last, um, you know, few years have just been um, really a lot of the visionaries and revolutionaries that we look to for, um, an astute analysis and an accurate analysis that allows for us to take in um, an internationalist perspective um, with what's going on in the world. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it was clear, clear to me that, you know, he he was speaking truth to power about the U S in a way that's necessary. And also, I mean, interesting timing wise for us to have this conversation because I just saw a clip, um, with Condoleezza Rice on Fox News mm. and the the anchor, the TV anchor from Fox says, this is textbook, um, you know, uh, you know, illegal invasion of sovereign territories. And it, it's certainly a war crime. And then Condoleezza Rice is like, yes, absolutely. That is exactly what this is. And right. <laughs> the cognitive dissonance, the, the outright, I mean, you know, whatever you want to call it, but I mean, the hypocrisy is ridiculous. So. Uh, certainly a necessary conversation for Americans at all times, but, but especially in this moment. Yeah. And it's, it's wild because, you know, you, you look at how America now is in this position where they're looking at Russia 
as like, how dare you? Right. Mm-hmm. How dare you do that? Um, and it's like, yo, y'all, we literally just just several months ago just got done ending our occupation in a territory that we were not invited into, you know, that we had no reason to be in outside of being outside of the the, the reason of of territory and militaristic um, positioning, you know, for the sheer fact of like wanting to put our bases and, and strategy. That's it. You know, because they wanted to continue to have a foothold in that region of the world. Um, of course, having, you know, access with you know, in Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Um, but, you know, that's really what this war about. And, you know, I know they said it was to fight terrorism. But the same way that um, Putin says, I'm going to fight Nazism in Ukraine. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, like, how do you fight? How do you fight Nazism with war? How do you fight, you know, uh, unless you're, you know, they're. I mean, and of course, understanding World War II and all that. But how do you fight like an idea? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I'm going to get rid of an idea. I'm going to get rid of terrorism with, you know, by plunging American troops into this territory. I'm going to get rid of Nazism in Ukraine by plunging Russian troops into this territory. Like, it's a fascinating look on how world powers try to justify their imperialistic ideals. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, you know, we're talking about U.S. and Russia and obviously, you know, you know, mentioning Iraq and Afghanistan, but also, you know, w- with regard to the U.S. and Russia, we can also use the example of Syria. Mm, right. Yeah. And um, on all sides, you heard the arguments of eliminating terrorism um, and Bashar al-Assad, who, you know, is another authoritarian um, leader in, in the Arab world, was able to keep power. Um, using that same argument. And so, and, and, and in, in addition to that, you know, China has used that argument yeah. with regards to what they're doing to the Uyghur population. So, so it's kind of the new, um, you know, fashionable trend as far as governments. It's the easy allegation that allows for you as a state, as a nation state, to pretty much get away with anything, right? Um, it, it allows for you to just uh, issue vague statements about them undermining the security and for people to just sweep it under the rug and, and continue on as usual. Why do you think that, you know, we as a world, as a society, tend to have a short-term memory in terms of imperialistic ideals? Like, it's it's weird to see how people, like, we just forgot that, you know, this is just the way um, societies function. I mentioned France um, still having the cognitive distance and stuff like we get, we, you know, he wants to go back to the old world, world, um, old world empires. And I'm like, yeah, but you're still collecting money from Africa like and telling them that they have to deposit money into your banks. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So like, what are you talking about, bro? You know what I mean? Like, so I, I think like this is bringing me to one point and then, you know, maybe we can get back to the question, but like oh, yeah. we can absolutely condemn what Russia is doing. Um, but we also must condemn U.S. imperialism in this same moment, right? Yeah, See, this yeah. head-to-head col- uh, collision that's happening between Russia and NATO U.S.-backed forces um, are really a product of, you know, years and, and decades of failed uh, diplomacy and um, failed um, leadership on, on regard of, of really both nation states, right? right? I mean, the reality is, We've been in a mad race for nuclear proliferation. And, and then, of course, you know, several nations got 
the nukes, and then it became a position uh, or a game about positionality, right? Where you, where can you position your warheads and your nukes, and and where can you position your military bases, and where can you, you know, position your your security and intelligence branches, and so all of this became a part of the game. And so here, what you have, you know, in Russia and Ukraine is, you know, Russia showing their force, and and NATO and and U.S. allies for years have been showing their force, and now they're in the, you know, uh, meeting head to head. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's fascinating you say like you know it's it's this nuclear proliferation proliferation and it's the build up of a like I don't know where the end game is right but it all stems from uh, the position of nations not wanting to or wanting to protect themselves from each other's nuclear nuclear arsenal you know what I mean like or the feeling of being attacked and it's like everybody's on this high intense alert like i have to i have to claim territories i have to get in position i have to put bases over here i have to set up a block because i don't trust you mm-hmm. you know and it's like it's like this ramping up of distrust but it's like the war enterprise the only people who benefit are, is 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 warring enterprises right because they're like oh this is great um this is you know war's money you know yep yeah. War's money, yep. and, and it's like how, but everybody else keeps ramping up, and it's like, where does it stop? Because yes, Russia is in, in, invades Ukraine, you know, but the 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 question is, why do they feel the need to do that? You know what I mean? Like, why do they feel the need? And we and we have to heard the answers of, you know, because of NATO and because they feel like they have a sovereign ideal of reclaiming the country, but it's like there's a root issue there that of like we're a society that is so conditioned for attack or for waiting on the next attack that, you know, everybody, all nations are guilty of claiming territories and, and, and positioning that is toxic to the, you know, survival of humanity. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What you're really getting at is the formation of the nation state and, and modern borders that, you know, hundreds of years ago didn't exist. And, and so therefore the creation of these borders and nation states has actually been, um, kind of a, a shocking uh, and, and devastating um, impact on those cultures and societies. You're talking about people and languages and and land and environments and ability to provide for your families uh, and, and just doing so in a certain way that has existed for thousands of years, speaking certain languages. Um, but but what happens is with the buildup of these nation states is, again, it, it became, you know, the uh, it, it became a race to, to nuclear proliferation. Of course, we, we saw how that ended up. And then it became really all about, again, positionality. And what you have here is that, you know, nation states that have the big guns or the nukes are able to dictate more foreign policy wise. They're also really able to dictate more power at the U.N. Uh, we can talk a little bit about the U.N. Security Council, you know, for that example. Yeah. But 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 in reality, like the only thing that would keep us safe is either if everyone had them. Or no one had them. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's really no in between there, right? Because right. you have all these governments, and you could say, oh well, the U.S. is, you know, the barometer of democracy and justice. Well, the U.S. just had fucking Donald Trump as president, right? So I don't trust the U.S. to be the moral authority. I, I mean, and we can go back, you know, the history of this country for why it shouldn't be the moral authority. But even as far as nukes, like, right. do we really believe that the U.S. is to be trusted with nukes? Do we really believe that the Israelis? who have bombed Lebanon, who have bombed Syria, who have bombed Palestine. I mean, who have they not bombed? Do we really trust these nation states with nukes? And they have nukes. Right. So, so, so I mean, as, as it relates to nuclear powers and nuclear proliferation, you know, my, my simple, you know, 
you know, gut sense about it all is either everyone should have them or no one should have them. I agree and, 100%. And that's, the only and that's the only deterrent, period. I agree. I agree 1,000%. Like, weaponry, um, the weaponizing of our nations is only increasing the uh, the peril of our, of the world. You know what I mean? Like we, you know, it's the the the, uh, the paranoia of world leaders of having to kill and destroy and take territories and redraw lines. It's all based on the fact that I don't trust this motherfucker over here. That's right. You know, what and I mean? imagine, imagine if that was your neighborhood, bro. Right. Like, imagine if you're 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 on the block and you know you're cool, you're this peaceful ass dude, but then you start seeing your neighbor. You know, they start building out their fence further and further, and then you notice they start putting cameras all around the block. Then you notice they got snipers on the roof. Then right. you notice they got fucking tank parked outside. You know what the hell are you gonna do? Like, at what point is it is it no longer about them protecting themselves, but more about them, you know, showing power and dominance, and them right. exerting a certain amount of influence and 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 impact that they want to derive from that power? So, to, I, I mean, it's all relative. To your point, I, you know, if a neighbor was doing that, I would actually have to react to. Well, I need to get my guns up. Cause I don't know what this dude's trying to do. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like I need a, I'm exactly. not even, I'm not even a weapons guy. And I'm like, yeah, I gotta, I would tell my wife, like, we gotta get, we gotta get loaded up. Cause this guy's on some, and he's aiming his guns right at us. Like, it's just not, it's just not him getting tanks and artillery and all this other stuff, but like they're pointed right at our house, you know? So I don't that's know. Exactly right. And that's the argument that's been used. Right. And that's right. what everyone, you know, um, you know, the, with these folks having their weapons, we need to be able to protect ourselves. And I mean, it just instills, um, you know, to, to the point you were making earlier, a lack of trust, uh, it, it instills fear, it, it, it instills xenophobia, right? It instills kind of the baseline that you're going to need to take advantage of in the case of wanting to go to war or to support war, right. which is what we're seeing. So one of the things I, I and, you know, we'll move on to next uh, next topic in a moment, but I just wanted to point this out. Um, the, th the fascinating thing I had last week and the last couple of weeks uh, was... America, Americans lack of geopolitical understanding of what's happening in the world and lack of historical understanding. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because it's really inherent on in how we see the world. Like we lack an education of like countries and, and nation states and in history. Mm -hmm. And it really, it really is to our own peril because you know, you talk to people and a lot of people are like, I don't even know, I don't even know why Ukraine or Russia and Ukraine have a conflict. And you're like, what? And then you realize like, oh, that's just the, that's the typical American ideal of how they see the world. You know, they that's don't, right. they don't see anything. And I, I'm just, I'm going to, um, I'm taking a quick detour here, but I'm going to pivot back. I remember when I was in school and I was like, I was, it had been, uh, I don't know, junior high or, fre or freshman year in high school. The teacher, or the teacher was telling me how he went to, um, Greece and um, he went to Greece and he said yeah like I went to Greece and how the people in um, in that town knew more about American political structure and our and our senators and congressmen more than I did you know and mm -hmm. it forced him to really think like dang like how do they know so much about our American systems more than I did and then it's like he said so he made a vow at that point he said I'm going to learn everything around the world or as much as I can about different world governments. That stuck with me to the point where many, 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 many years later, when I went um, in my first trip to Europe, I, um, I made sure I like studied up like six months in advance, like a nerd, like the different part. Cause I we were visiting um, both uh, Paris and London. 
I wanted to read up on parliamentary procedure in um, for um, Great Britain, what was going on in the local in the locale in that government, and as well as learning about as much Paris, uh, France um, government and how what was happening. I say all that to say when I got to France, when I got to um, London, we had an hour long. I don't know if anybody's been to London. It's like um, Gatwick's an hour long, um, hour away from actually central London. So we had to take a cab drive. We're in the cab, and the the cab driver was talking about what was going on in Britain, and I was, and he was talking about the, the politics and everything like that. And I was able to have an hour long conversation with this guy about parliament parliamentary procedure and the things that were happening around the world. Towards the end of the cab ride, he said, "You're like the only American I can remember that actually <laughs> knows yeah. can, can talk to me about." Uh, parliament because we were talking about both american politics and all that he's like it's fascinating he's like i drive americans all the time and they don't know they barely know anything about their own government and yet they and they can't interpret and then again on that same trip i was talking to somebody in france and we just happened at a bar and i happened to talk they were talking about government and again i was talking about what was happening in that particular time about france and government and elections come upcoming and things that i know they're coming up that next year and he stopped me in the middle conversation like wow Americans usually don't know this stuff. You know it. I say all that to say not to put a feather in my cap, maybe a little bit, but to point to show that it's such a rarity for us to understand um, geopolitical status and everything going around the world and how and it frames how we see the world um, just on when we're being fed narratives by the media. You follow me? 100%. Yeah, this is an interesting uh, point. So like this is how this has come up for me in the last uh, couple of weeks. Yeah. You know, with Russia's invasion on Ukraine, um, you know, I started to see a lot of my friends, particularly my friends that have leftist politics, anti-war politics, anti-imperialist politics, really kind of, you know, the type of politics where you just, you know, to, to what we were saying earlier, you know, the U.S. has been the bad guy. And so you're not willing to buy that. But right. but what they, what I started to see is they were sharing a meme or a graphic from Redfish Stream an IG um, page. Mm. And what was interesting about that page in particular is that page Redfish Stream is state sanctioned Russian controlled uh, media. It's, it's Russian controlled media. Wow. Um, uh, so it, it was really interesting because a lot of times they present really spot on critique of the U S um, you know, and racial justice. Uh, a friend of mine named Maytha Al Hassan on IG has like done a lot of posts on this and talked about it a lot around the fact that like this is like propaganda that's very intentional about seeping into our mindsets yeah because they're because they're appealing to um uh like a space here a community of people here that are very distrustful of this government yeah i say all that to say that their posts are valid but we have to be wary of those points of propaganda mm. those those state um, you know, uh, media bases like Redfish Street. But what's also important is here in the U.S., we don't have state-controlled media necessarily, but we do have these major same media groups, you know, kind of owned by the same media conglomerates, yeah. right? They have a certain perspective. And that perspective, a lot of time, aligns with empire. Yeah. And so while while CNN and, 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 you know, Fox aren't necessarily state-produced media, they are, you know, um, media corporations produced by the, you know, 1%, if you will, the, the people that are, you know, um, building up the capital off of our pain and suffering and the people that are directing a lot of that to media and to electoral politics so that they can continue to have their stranglehold on it. So so I guess my, my point by, by all this was that you were talking about how essentially ignorant Americans are 
um, of, of things going on domestically and worldwide. And and my point um, was really that it's by design. Yeah. You know, um, they, they not only, you know, our educational system, but the media, what we consume, you know, what you talked about, like, how is it important for how can Americans stay, you know, on top of these things instead of just, you know, every eight months they tell us to care about something. And right. the, reality, the reality is you just have to dig deeper. You have to have your own media sources. You have to stay connected to people internationally beyond um, beyond these borders. Um, you have to have real connections with real people that can tell you um, the facts on the ground as opposed to what you're getting from the media. And then, you know, when I say like your own sources, I, I like to read a lot of international sources. I yeah, like to absolutely. look at, yeah. um, you know, the Intercept, uh, the Guardian. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I look at Al Jazeera sometimes. Yeah, Al Jazeera sometimes. I mean, yeah. I, I definitely, I, I don't watch the news in the U.S. I don't read, you know, mainstream U.S. Um, media outlets. I try to go beyond that. Yeah. Um, but but that's the reason why we're so far behind, man. It's it's by design. So to your point, actually, on Twitter, I purposely follow um, journalists from different regions of the world, um, economists, different particular people, um, because I'm always interested to see how they see the world. And I, I recently started adding um, journalists who are from Russia, you know, and or and because yeah. I wanted to see how are they viewing the world. And I, I think mm-hmm. it's important to have these real life under, uh, 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 connections the people but like because they're seeing it from a perspective that is not usually fed to us as you mentioned to the um the media conglomerate group that is often um shown and sometimes it's destructive and other times it can give us a different framework of how we want to see the world and opens up our eyes um the thing about it is I, and it's problematic is that you to your point you mentioned the lack of interest and that's what bothers me a lot when i talk when i talk to americans they're like i don't care it doesn't matter it's not this isn't important it's not important to me and I'm like, but the, but then it becomes very important when a worldwide event happens, and now they're trying to Google and understand what's happening. Everybody comes a geopolitical like expert in the next yeah. like week, yeah. you know. But before yeah. they, they, they could, just like they became vaccine experts, right? And they but they couldn't. But the, the week before they couldn't even point out where Ukraine was, you know. And it's important to have a consistent daily understanding of what's happening around the world to the point where um, I'm saying right now, and is that. The real conflict is not with Russia. It's going to be with China, you know, like and people don't are not really paying attention. That And I'm going to do a podcast about that eventually. You don't have to get into that. But if you're paying attention, you have been paying attention for the last five years. You would know where this is leading up to. You understand, like the, the battle of territories in the South Pacific and why that's important. You understand why, you know, uh, President uh, Z is, has have been quiet at this point of the Ukraine Russian uh, um, conflict. You would understand th- what China's intentions are with U.S. and their tr- and being why U.S. is a trade biggest their biggest trade partner and and quote quote asset ally. They're also their biggest um, enemy. And like, what does that mean? Like, but you cannot do that when all of a sudden there's a worldwide conflict between China and America and be like, well, how did we get here? Like, no, bro, yeah, this has yeah. been leading up for like almost a decade. You know what I mean? And so. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Well, 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 definitely you'll have your own podcast, but I'll just say, I saw a homie of mine who had a tweet. He was like, yeah, uh, good job. Like go at Russia and China at the same time uh, that that'll end well. And he was basically talking about, you know, obviously this, this current, you know, um, going head to head with Russia, but also, Former, uh, I think it was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo mm-hmm. uh, under Trump. He was saying that you know it's about time for the U.S. to to recognize um, you know the independence of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, like, is this the really the moment that the U.S. wants to pull um, 
you know, all of these moves, um, you know, with with this, um, you know, kind of international escalation with Russia and China. So yeah. uh, time will tell, man, and, I, and I'll tune in and listen to that podcast for sure. Appreciate it, man. So, you know, moving the conversation forward and we just want to talk about media. And with that being said, I'm going to play a succession of clips, four clips that total out to be like mm, probably like a minute and um, and like 50 seconds or whatnot. Sure. But um, it's going to show the inherent bias of media. So just bear with me uh, one moment. It's really touching me, I'm sorry. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed, children being killed every day with Putin's missiles and okay. his helicopters and his rockets. This isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. So it's partly population. As you're talking to us, Matthew, we're playing in the latest pictures of some of the refugees trying to get on trains or trying to get out of Ukraine. And, and what's compelling is just looking at them the way they're dressed. These are prosperous, I'm loath to use the expression, these are prosperous middle-class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from areas in the Middle East that are still in a big state of war. These are not people trying to get away from areas in North Africa. They look like any European family that you would live next door to. Now the unthinkable has happened to them. And this is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. It's Robert Moore. <laughs> Those clips were hilarious to me. Like, yeah. I, I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Um, because like the idea that you know, number one, one of the clips that talked about, uh, you know, Ukraine, these middle class families in Ukraine. I'm like, Ukraine's like literally one of the poorest nations in Europe. <laughs> it's like, what are you even talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, we you know we I mean? hate poor people. We hate we hate brown people, black people, poor people. I mean, when I say we, I mean America. Right. But you get it. Yeah. And it's like, so it's that. But then it's like this, this idea of like, oh, you know, my heart was broken my tears when I saw blonde hair and blue white people attacking one another and you mm-hmm. know and and how you know this is not a third world country enveloped in war and you know in society this is Europe and I'm like um excuse me ma'am <laughs> sir uh Europe is actually the basis of war in in entire world like yeah. we 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 literally had two world wars started in Europe like what are you even saying to me right now yeah, they they uh, I guess they they really just want us to think of the last like fifteen years and not the like last few thousand. Everything they were doing across the world, but no, look. I, in addition to being hilarious, I mean those clips are disgusting, right? Yeah. I mean because it's really not even those individual journalists. No, like it's it could be easy to point at those individual journalists, but they're being spoon fed exactly the the type of perspective present. They they know exactly what they're supposed to say, how they're supposed to say it. Um, because they've been doing it for decades. It's 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 influenced how not only this conflict is covered, but how several conflicts have been covered. And and I, I mean, again, that's why I'm excited for us to have this this conversation today, because, um, you know, in relation to, you know, how Palestine is yeah. um, covered, it's really interesting in this moment to see like the celebration of the bravery yeah. and the honor and the resistance 
of the Ukrainian people, like the president, right? The president of Ukraine literally made a call for people from all over the world to come and join arms right. and resist Russian invasion. Right. Imagine if an Arab or Muslim leader did that. Actually, we don't have to imagine because that's what ISIS did, <laughs> right? Right? It, like, like those groups like that, when they made those calls, it was regarded as like, oh, these folks are leaving to join terrorist groups. Yeah. But here you are, like, as a Palestinian American Muslim watching Americans, like, you know, go hard to just, you know, celebrate and uplift these examples of Ukrainian resistance, whether it's Molotov cocktails or it's those photos of like the random civilians and family members picking up guns, like, and taking pictures with the guns, like, you know, actors and boxers and everyone saying, you know what, we're going to fight, you know, we're going to you know, we're going to kill invaders, like the language they would use. I mean, it's just um, it's really baffling to see how quickly Western media and Western, you know, populations eat it all up. You know, it, it's um, to your point is like it's grotesque, right, to see like how, you know, the media conglomerate um, you know, takes a look at conflict through the lens of white supremacy. You know, what I mean, and they they pattern it as if what is deserved a deserved right to defend one's sovereignty and one's and what is a you know undeserved right of like okay you know you guys are terrorists or you guys are third world or you guys it's almost like it strips the humanity from somebody because how do like we're framing these conversations in these people of they have the right to be refugees even the fact of like they're not refugees what the fuck does that even mean like, like a refugee is somebody coming from a war torn society or having the uh, not being able to return because of a conflict in that particular region. It has nothing to do with your its financial level or does it have nothing to do with your skin color. But the way they frame these coded words uh, uh, and it's, it's anti it's, it's anti black, anti people of color into like only a certain sector of the world should be deemed refugee. Right. And in, in that sense. Um, if they're refugees, we should treat them accordingly. But they're not refugees because we only see them through a certain frame. You follow me? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I'm really excited to be a part of a growing left in the U.S. that is anti-war. And so when we oppose um, imperialism, we have to oppose it on all fronts. And so while we, um, again, oppose Russia's invasion into Ukraine, you know, we also oppose NATO and all of these AFRICOM, you know, different forces that the U.S. Um, utilizes um, in its service of imperialism and empire. And, and then what does that um, in relationship have to do with um, white nationalism and white supremacy? Well, you know, really, I think in understanding history, uh, the history of Europe and colonization, uh, the history of uh, the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, um, the history of the West um, and its waging of wars has taught us that imperialism uh, has actually serviced and worked hand in hand with white supremacy. It's oftentimes, you know, the African countries uh, and the Middle Eastern countries that when they're invaded, they're talked about a certain way um, versus what we're seeing right now with Ukraine, where it seems like every single international body in the world is ready to react. You know, mm -hmm. Russia has been kicked out of FIFA uh, has been kicked out of the Olympics. I mean, you name it, um, whatever it is, Russia is going to be kicked out, you know, whereas, you know, the United States, Israel, uh, many of the other nations that also.
also have served as occupying invading forces, uh, human rights uh, violators, war crimes committers, um, have obviously evaded accountability. And what that does is for, for people of color like us, it makes us that much more uh, less safe. Uh, or that much less safe, and and specifically, if we want to talk about you know um, you know areas of the military, whether we're talking about you know uh, abroad, you know, for instance, some of the forces that we're hearing about in the Ukrainian army that are uh, you know neo Nazis, we have the same factions uh, in our military forces in the U.S. and police forces, and that you know was quite clear with the January sixth. Um, you know, attacks on the Capitol, yeah. that white nationalism, um, very, very, very similar to how people of color have bonded together over the decades and, and have a perspective of internationalism that is anti-imperialist and anti-war. Uh, a lot of white folks across these borders and boundaries, you know, are committed and united by uh, a support of white nationalism and white supremacy. So, you know, that's absolutely related. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. You know what I was wondering about? Um, the international community reaction to Ukraine. And I don't know if you've ever thought you thought about this, but Zelensky. And do you think it's because he's a white male, you know, or even to say a, a Jewish white male, um, it, it the appeal is greater as opposed to somebody, if there was a... A, a, a Muslim leader, you know what I mean, or an African leader. Do you think the the appeal would be different? Yeah. So, so there's two layers to this. There's, you know, there's the layer of the identity of the person resisting uh, this occupation, and that Zelensky is a white Jewish uh, male. I think you know, um, you know, is is really a, a big. I think, um, connector for the West, right? The U.S. makes no qualms about its, you know, uh, Judeo-Christian foundations, right? Um, we often hear of how U.S. leadership lifts up their relationship with the state of Israel as an example of their commitment, you know, to Judeo-Christian values and, um, you know, to the Jewish people. And so Zelensky here being obviously, um, you know, a white Jewish male. In addition to that, you know, uh, the West continues to have Holocaust guilt, which they should because the West allowed for it to happen, right? right. Um, the West sat there as those Jews were being slaughtered um, and did nothing until, you know, we lost millions of people, unfortunately, in one of the most grave injustices in, in entire human history. And to your point, again, committed by Europe. And so the West very similar maybe to how it views Israel as this like small yet brave protectorate of certain values and ideals in the midst of this sea of Arab, you know, and Muslim hegemony that, you know, they probably are looking at, you know, Zelensky is this shining, brave, you know, Jewish white male hero against Russian invasion. So, so like I said, there was two layers. The other, the other side that, that paints this picture for us is who Zelensky's opposing. Right. Right. If, if, if he was opposing someone that the U.S. was tighter with, that the U.S. liked more, for instance, maybe a non-Jewish white, white dude, because we know that, again, anti-Semitism uh, really was um, most severe in Europe um, yeah. and also has been severe in the U.S. So, what, again, connecting the threat of white nationalism and white supremacy, um, you know, you, you think about 
um, those different layers and conversations. And so, you know, the, the opposition to Russia, which, you know, Russia and China are obviously, um, you know, I, I would say the opposition, if you will, to uh, U.S. imperialist interests in those parts of the world and maybe other. Um, and so this is the, the natural picture that's being painted for us as uh, citizens here in the U.S. Um, so let's um, let's move it to uh, uh, Palest- uh, Palestine. And I'm really fascinated in the Palestinian perspective. But with that, I'm going to play a unconventional clip uh, with Palestine in regards to a little girl who was just um, experiencing the tragedy of her her, her home being uh, um, bombed on. My mom was sick. My mom was, I don't know. I can't do anything. You were, all of this. What, what do you expect me to do? Fix it? I'm only 10. I can't even do anything in this morning. I just want to be a doctor or anything to help my people, but I can't. I'm just a kid. I don't even know what to do. I get scared, but not really that much. I get, I do anything for my people, but I don't know what to do. I'm just 10. I'm just 10. All of this, when I see it, I literally cry every day, saying to my... Hello, Maud? Yes, sir. Like, I don't know if you saw that clip, but I mean, I'm sure you've heard there's scores and thousands and thousands of clips of um, Palestinian citizens um, feeling the after effects of war and damage and just the imperialistic idea of what Israel has done to particular regions. And to the point where I didn't um, I didn't bring this up, but I'm going to show I, I just follow me in my train of thought here. Yeah. So, so Zelensky to your point earlier, you mentioned how he was like doing this thing of he was asking people to join in on in the world, you know, sure. and to the point where um, the Senegalese uh, people, uh, uh, the president said that they reject the idea of somebody trying to recruit because he, t- he told he told uh, different nations, especially in Senegal, like, hey, come, go to Senegal and see if you can join this fight. And Senegalese people said, you know, we they wrote a national statement saying that, you know, we reject uh, Ukraine's. Uh, um, trying to garner our people to fight their war, and then mm-hmm. on the same point, um, there was a uh, uh, the Jewish uh, um, minister said something. Uh, Israel minister said something. Said Jews in in Ukraine, come home, come to Israel, and we're going to you know we're going to uh, um, uh, give you a place to stay, and uh, and they're expecting at least tens of thousands of. Of Ukrainians to actually come to Israel and they're actually going to place them. I say all that to say that the it's the like audacity of people telling other people from the other nations to like how to like the, the connection of no a either try to recruit somebody or telling people like come over here we got you and it's like nobody uh, speaks on these things of how disrespectful and how unconscionable. These uh, these comments these comments are yeah yeah let me let me jump on that one immediately brother because that that's a that's a point that I don't think many people critically think about right so Israel's offering refuge to people fleeing from war it sounds really 
like a beautiful sentiment. But thinking about it more deeply and critically, we know the fact is that these Ukrainian Jews are now going to be settled on stolen Palestinian land while Palestinians are actively being kicked out of homes in East Jerusalem. I mean, can you imagine the fact that, you know, those activists that we've been watching from Sheikh Jarrah, like Muhammad al-Kurd and Muna al-Kurd, you know, what Israel literally wants to do is to make sure that those people are evicted, forced, expelled from, from those homes and from Jerusalem, and then you can just replace them with Jews from all across the world. And that's actually exactly what Israel's done since its inception. And so for, for people in 2022 to now get this visual where we're actively all in May and June, we witnessed people being forced out of their homes. We witnessed girls um, crying in the rubble of their homes, explaining that they don't know what to do because they're 10 years old and they shouldn't have to face these decisions. We witnessed massacres of entire families, literally, you know, 20 plus members of of entire families being wiped out by Israeli bombings. Um, And and we didn't see any action about it. We didn't see any action. We didn't see enough action. Uh, And so we're here in this moment where we're we're being told, you know, that, you know, this Russian invasion on Ukraine is absolutely the most vicious thing that we witnessed in history. And we have to call into question everything that we're being told. So to the point that I started around, these Ukrainian Jews, while they do deserve refuge, right? right. Think about this. Every person fleeing Ukraine needs refuge, right? Like, I I know you've seen in the media, just like I have, the discrimination that black folks and Africans are facing at these different borders, right? Well, this is just another form of discrimination. And that's exactly why Palestinians from the start have been telling people aloud, as loud as we could, that Zionism is an affront on human rights and humanity and justice. It tells you that right now, in in Israel's uh, view of things, only the Ukrainian Jews are worth saving. Right. Right. Non-Jews from Ukraine, the Muslim Ukrainians, the Christian Ukrainians. Unfortunately, in Israel's calculation, those people better find somewhere else to stay. Right. That's what they're telling us right now. So it's 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 incredible to see how Palestinians are right now fighting to maintain their province, to maintain their homes, because they're especially on the East Bank. The, the people's homes are being taken away, eliminated, not even taken. They're being eliminated. And yet, the audacity of I think it's the, I think it's the World Zionist Organization. I forget. Um, yeah, yeah. Yep. it's the World Zionist Organization. Yeah, the World Zionist Organization um, has telling um, um, refugees, say, "Hey, hey, we got a place for over here for you. Don't even worry about it. We're going to set you up." And it's like, well, what? Where are you going to set them up? Because oh, I get it. You're going to set them up in places that you're planning on taking. So like. Like, it's perfectly okay. It's perfectly okay because guess what? We have the backing of the world community to do so. Um, there is no world, there's no uh, um, criticism from the United States to, or anybody to like to, def, to, to def, uh, deter um, Israel advancement in Palestinian ter- territories. That's right. And and under international law, moving a population, your population into an occupied territory is a violation of international law. But of course, international law doesn't apply to states like the, the United States or Israel because they're not signatories to the Rome statute. And even if they were signatories to the Rome Treaty or the Rome Statute, which uh, gives the International Criminal Court jurisdiction, 
the U.S. would threaten to remove all of its investment and funds and then would cripple the courts. And I think, you know, the state of Israel is obviously, um, you know, shown um, an ability to go as far as they need to to get what they want done. And so um, you, you could see, again, the hypocrisy is very clear. So explain to those uh, who may not know the, the Rome, the, uh, the Rome statute. Yeah. So in order for the International Criminal Court, which is the criminal court created by the United Nations, and in order for that criminal court to have jurisdiction over your territory, meaning in order for the court to actually hold someone accountable or attempt to hold someone accountable for crimes committed in a certain territory, that actual nation state had to have signed up to be accountable. Um, And states like Israel, states like the United States, um, and others have just refused to sign it. I mean, what do you do if they refuse to sign it? I mean, how much does interna- international law matter when some of the biggest players in the world, those who claim to be about the universal values of justice and equality, um, wh- what do you do when those powers outright reject even being open to the possibility of accountability? So the Rome Statute or the Rome Treaty is what you sign when you allow for the ICC to have jurisdiction over your territories Mm. so let me ask you then um you know why do you feel like or what is your in your opinion um why the media or you know western powers have ignored palestinian rights as opposed to and in against israel um, their palestinian israel conflict so the palestinian rights you know are often interpreted with a different um, viewpoint um, in terms of how the U.S. and the world uh, sees them? Like, why do you think that is, uh, Aman? Well, you know, this this goes back to the earlier point about, you know, not just the identity of those resisting, um, but the person that they're resisting against or the entity that they're resisting against. And for the Palestinian people, we're resisting against uh, the state of Israel against Zionism. And of course, Zionism and Israel is a tool of Western imperialism. And it was created as such uh, when the British uh, and the U.S. initially supported the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. For them, it was a foothold into the Arab world, into um, a, a world where they needed uh, a form of territory. Um, and so it's not just that the Palestinian people are you know, regarded as um you know kind of uh how do you say in otherized peoples right i mean people imagine palestinians as all being brown and muslim uh when the reality is that you know palestinians come in all shades black brown right uh you know more fair-skinned blonde blue-eyed uh dark hair dark eyes curly hair straight hair um we're really um we have it all and it's because there's been so many you know, different peoples that have come and and occupied that land over the thousands of years. Um, But I think that's a really interesting point, too, to make this connection, because um, one of the things that happened over the last couple of weeks is some Palestinian posts um, from before went viral. Um, However, it was being understood that these were posts um, from Ukraine. And what I'm mentioning specifically is there's a young Palestinian girl named Ahed Tamimi, A-H-E-D-T-A-M-I-M-I. And Ahed Tamimi um, is from an area called Nabi Saleh. Um, and it's a village that has faced 
uh, incursions by the Israeli military, advancement by the Israeli military, basically um, all sorts of attacks and forces on these people, their homes, their young people, etc. And Ahed Tamimi is a very fair skinned, uh, mm. blonde haired uh, Palestinian girl that uh, went viral a couple of years ago because she slapped an Israeli soldier. Um, they they were literally in her front yard. You know they had sh- they had shot stunning grenades at her cousins. They had actually killed her cousin uh, or, or a family member at some point um, via live ammunition. And so this is a girl and a family in a community that's faced vicious attacks. So I had Tamimi slaps the Israeli soldier, and she's actually brutally arrested and spends eight months in in prison. And we had to rally. We had to rally for eight months to get this young girl who was at the at the time 16 years old. We had to rally to get her released. But people were sharing this post in the last couple of weeks because they were alleging that this was a, a brave, young, proud Ukrainian girl standing up to the Russians. And so on all sorts of like, you know, media hits online on social media, you know, they were celebrating this young girl, whereas, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, Western powers were you know, literally silent as Israel was, um, you know, uh, you know, confining this girl to prison, torturing her psychological games, et cetera, et cetera, until she was eventually released. So um, I say all that to say um, the Palestinian people are not given um, a just, a fair or a righteous opportunity in Western media and in Western, um, you know, governmental conversations, foreign policy conversations, um, because the calculation was made long ago that the U.S. Uh, would be better served, U.S. imperialism would be better served through supporting uh, the Israeli nation state in the middle of the Middle East. So, and you may have answered this already, but like, how do Palestinians feel about like when they see international support of like Ukraine? Do they feel like that's interesting? Do they feel like you know a bit of like? anger or like what does the general feel about it i know it's hard for you to explain talk for, for an entire nation but just yeah I mean, yeah what i can tell you is is it's several feelings and it's because i've i've experienced several feelings and the, the palestinians i've spoken to have have felt um you know some type of way about it as well you know on, on one hand you're extremely frustrated with the hypocrisy i mean the way joe biden can talk about vladimir putin when he says who in god's uh you know, name told this guy he can do this. I mean, to see the way they talk about um, these assaults, to see the way FIFA and all these other bodies respond to Russian aggression um, and their utter silence on Israeli aggression is deeply frustrating. It's deeply painful. It tells you that um, that certain structures and institutions in this world don't care about you. Um, and, and it really tells us that we have so much more work to do. Uh, to continue to defeat imperialism, to to continue to defeat these um, systems of apartheid and settler colonialism, we have so much more power that we need to build. Yeah. Now, and that and that's where I'll that that's where I'll get to this. You know, some of the other feelings that come up. It's also a feeling of opportunity, mm. right? You, you know, a lot of times in life, you you, you get in the, in these really ugly moments, and and you can you can dwell in in kind of the pain and and the disgust of it and the hypocrisy of it, and you can also think about a path forward. And I think. In this moment that apparently um, Americans care about supporting armed resistance Mm. and apparently Americans care about territorial sovereignty and apparently Americans oppose 
violent military occupations, then then we need to use this opening and opportunity to make sure these people have f- fucking heard about Palestine, right? And if they haven't, um, if they haven't heard about it in the right manner, you know, how are we able to get them the right information so that they understand that the U.S. is actively supporting the bad guy for the last seventy plus years? Your tax dollars, your advanced weaponry, uh, your technological advancements are all being used. Um, to brutally ethnically cleanse this population and actively replace them with a new settler um, population, um, the most recently now arriving from Ukraine. So do you, I mean, do you really think, though, because you mentioned FIFA and all these other world powers, and, you know, and like I said, there'll probably be another podcast talking about the financial idealism of the world's response to Ukraine. But do you really see the world reacting to, you know, Ukraine or any any type of uh, uh, nation of, of color um, with the same financial sanctions and impact that they've levied against Russia? Like, can you realistically say that? Or do you, or maybe there's, there's a hope that I don't see? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a real question, man. And, and you know what, we get that question a lot of times from, from Palestinians in Palestine, from Palestinians and Arabs and and allied organizers here in the U.S. And and my, my thought process is, man, we're here, right? We're here in the U.S. We're paying these taxes. We're participating one way or another, um, either um, you know vocally or otherwise, um, in this form of government. Um, and so there are challenges ahead of us, and there are also opportunities. Now, what? What I what Palestinians like to look at as an example, and you mentioned divestment and sanctions, and we really get a lot of um, conversations go, going around around divest boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Um, the model that Palestinians have uplifted, we've always mentioned that it was modeled after South African apartheid, right? Right. We saw how the international community not only started to divest from corporations, but even cultural events, you know, similar to what I just mentioned with FIFA, you know, it got to the point where South African uh, athletes were no longer welcomed. Right? right. And at that point in time, Israel and the United States were some of the last nations to stand by uh, South African apartheid, literally some of the last nations to support them diplomatically and provide them with arms. Um, eventually, the U.S. had to cut ties. Now, it didn't happen easily. It happened over decades of organizing. Eventually, it, it, either the profit margin, um, the diplomatic ties began to be, maybe it, it began to be close, too close to home with all the protests all over the United States. For one reason or another, um, the empire, U.S. imperialism, made the calculation that they were going to cut their ties of South African apartheid. So... As a Palestinian who, you know, lives in the U.S., has citizenship in the U.S., pays taxes in the U.S., and works in the U.S., um, I have to view part of my role in being on this piece of land um, is to fight to end the U.S.'s ultimate support of that settler colonial apartheid state of Israel. So does it look unrealistic? Does it look maybe impossible? Sure. Um, 
but but maybe so did ending support for South African apartheid. Maybe so so did support for ending Jim Crow laws. Maybe so on and so forth. Um, we have to remain hopeful that we can change. You know, otherwise we can fall victim. Um, you know, I think to other sorts of um, you know dynamics and ideologies in the world that that are not that are certainly not helpful to our people. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Let me ask you, like, and maybe you've already answered this, but why do you think money and war? is looked at differently for Ukraine than it is for like conflicts such as Palestinian Israel. Like the, the money given to um, Ukraine to fight, like they've gotten billions upon billions of dollars from around the world in aid. And, you know, in, in comparison to other, you know, you mentioned in Palestine how it's, there is no real support financially. Like, why do you feel that that's, different or do you have an opinion on that well well palestinians are able to get um at times financial support um you know especially after you know moments of humanitarian disaster you know after a few thousand palestinians are mercilessly uh, massacred by israel and the, the hospitals and the schools and the institutions are all bombed to smithereens and they're rubble um, every now and then the international community comes up with a few billion dollars, but that's not justice. Is it no. when, when people bomb, bomb the fuck out of your neighborhood and, and massacre your people? Um, and then they're like, oh, we'll throw you a few dollars to rebuild. Um, and so, so money, it's, it's important to note that while financial support and weaponry and, and these things are, are, uh, important avenues, um, to be able to offer people, you know, resisting, you know, these sorts of systems, um, what we're asking for the U.S. to do is just stop protecting, uh, you know, the, the the criminal, right? We're we're asking for the U.S. to stop arming and protecting and defending the person that's actively committing the harm. We actually don't even. I mean, if if you were really to ask, you know, Palestinians want from the, want from the U.S., um, it'd be a different answer than maybe what we want from you know the people and international communities. But what what we really would want the U.S. Um, to do is. Uh, stop making our lives a living hell um, by funding, arming, and supporting and defending uh, the people that are putting the knife in our back and, and continuing to to drive that knife deeper and deeper into our back. So uh, I, I think, like, um, yeah, for, for everyone that's looking to how they can support Palestine, continue to organize, continue to advocate, continue to donate, continue to protest, continue to agitate. Um, but the biggest thing that we can do is make sure that no U.S. tax dollars, weapons, or diplomatic support continue to go to a settler colonial apartheid state that's actively massacring people. Right, and what I and I want to say this, man, because a lot of times, especially in the last couple of weeks, Ukraine has been positioned as this, you know, you know, righteous nation. Especially, you know, the the narrative that has been placed on them. But Ukraine is still a government that is ripe with corruption. It's still, as of three weeks ago, it was. Uh, a reason there was a reason why European Union did not want them in the European Union. There was a reason why NATO did not offer extend membership within NATO. There are scores of reasons why Ukraine was a problematic country um, for, you know, um, its joining of the international community. The narrative sh- uh, shift has been a complete 180, and it's been amazing. I I lay that foundation to say that, you know, while yes, Palestine you know, is fighting Israel for their rights. That doesn't mean that Palestine, it, it, we don't acknowledge that, you know, the things that Palestinians, you know, may have uh, contributed into the conflict of and, and acts of aggression. 
that doesn't take away from it. It just means that all of us showing the, the world shows because oftentimes we hear like, oh, well, Palestinians have done this or, you know, what about these things? And I'm like, OK, I get it. But what the world has now shown in the last two weeks that you don't need to be a perfect nation to get perfect support. You follow me? 100%. I mean, it's ridiculous. Americans think about, for instance, I mean, we don't even need to go to stand your ground laws, right? Let's right. keep those, you know, we're in Florida. Let's keep those uh, to the side. But like, if you think about the castle doctrine, right, we're both attorneys. Right. We understand how in the United States, you know, the king of the castle, if you're in your home, intruders come in and they threaten your livelihood, they threaten your life, you have the right to defend yourself, right? You don't need to retreat. Palestinians have been demanding the same thing for 70 years. We're literally in our homes. The difference in 2021 is you got people that are for the first time ever seeing it on live, you know, camera. And, and that happened for people in 2014 and happened in 2006. And so, you know, over the last 20 years, people have more and more begun to absorb the images, the videos, the sounds of occupation and ethnic cleansing, um, you know, the hand at the hands of the Israelis, you know, targeted towards the Palestinians. And so, you know, it's, it's I think, inevitable, you know, that people are going to continue to question that sort of thing. And that's why, like, Israel and the United States and I think, like, the the, the bodies and, and individuals and entities interested in maintaining the status quo, they've, they've been doing the, their best to kind of reignite this whole um, U.S.-Israeli relationship, which is is particularly the reason why Nancy Pelosi and several others went to uh, Israel just a couple of weeks ago um, to iterate that, reiterate that support. But the young people in this country, the young base of the Democratic Party, um, they're seeing beyond that. And I think we're going to have our South African apartheid moment with Israel, where in a few years, um, people are going to be ashamed to admit that they supported um, Israel, they're going to be ashamed to admit that they supported arming and 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 de defending such an entity. But we got a lot more work to do to get there. And and when I say a few years, it may be about ten, but it's coming. Yeah. So, and I do want to uh, highlight this, man. Like it, I'm not saying that Israel doesn't have the right to exist, right? I do want to make sure, and I don't think you're saying that. What you're saying is that the infringement on territories and and the brutality in which they've taken those territories and the inhumanity in which they've destroyed people's lives, those are the things that people are going to rally against from and, and say, hey, we cannot support this any further. Like, it's it's um, disgusting in how things have been allowed to be swept in the rug or ignored. And, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but am I, is that where you're coming from? As, as someone born in East Jerusalem can trace my family um, through historic Palestine for the last uh, 900 years at least, mm -hmm. um, we have to be asked um, whether we want a nation state founded on our land. That 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 decision belongs to us. Uh, that de decision doesn't belong to the international community. It didn't belong to the United Nations. It didn't belong to the British. And it certainly didn't belong to the Zionists that, you know, were operating out of Europe. You know, we just talked about Europe, right? And we're talking about, you know, these blatant violations. Well, what Zionism is, what the state of Israel is, was a bunch of people in Europe who were fed up with anti-Semitism. Of course, we understand that. We acknowledge the harm that anti-Semitism has done. And they they decided they wanted a nation state of their own. And what they did in order to gain that nation state was ethnically cleanse a million people in order to take that land. So it, it really shouldn't matter to us that they had a Jewish background and there's a, a historic relationship between the Jewish religion and the Holy Land. You know, Islam has a connection. Christianity has a connection. 
all those religions have a connection to that piece of land, it would be insane for any one of those religions to feel like they have ownership. Okay. All right. And I don't have the answer to it, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm looking at it from how can we appease yeah, you know. this is what I'll say. Yeah, this is what I'll say, man. To, to, to like, if I if I could speak to like you know Jewish folks, Jewish folks absolutely deserve safety and security wherever they live, whether it's in the Holy Land, in the United States, Italy, you name it, across the Middle East, you name it. They absolutely deserve that. But what we cannot happen, what 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 we cannot have, is a system where they're able to get their safety and security because of the subjugation of another population. So let's live in the Holy Land. And if you're Jewish and you are open to a society that is not Zionist, meaning Jew, Gentile, all equal, then let's live and let live. But the, the problem is the ideology of Zionism, just like we know that white supremacy, you know, like there's no negotiation and ultimate surrender to white supremacy. Right. We need to defeat white supremacy. We need to defeat Nazism. Zionism is the exact same way. And when more and more, um, you know, Jews and non-Jews alike realize that, um, then we'll be that much closer to safety and security and peace in the Middle East. And then you think the media would go along with the media conglomerate, um, Western media conglomerate, rather, would be willing to contribute to that? Because I don't that's hard for me to see how they would rationalize such a. Yeah. Again, again, I, I mean, I can't, I can't operate from a position of fear or, uh, or just, um, or or just, um, you know, hopelessness. You remember Nelson Mandela was a terrorist, right? The international conglomerates, the international institutions, he was a terrorist. He was the, he was the problem. He was like the Hamas people, right? Right. I mean, Ronald Reagan famously did not like famously, um, uh, backed apartheid and he, um, called you know uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, an insurrectionist, a terrorist, and and you know said his jailing was was proper. So yeah, so so I mean you know like yeah, right now it's hard to imagine a lot of things, really hard. But but can you tell me that you could have imagined that a guy who like you know Mandela between the time I think he was imprisoned and then became president was like 30, 30 years. Can you imagine if like. Who's being accused of a te- of being a terrorist right now in the U.S.? I don't know. Like, can you imagine that person in thirty years rising to being president? I mean, it's it's absurd. You can't imagine it. So of course, it's really hard right now to imagine that. Wow, like Western media and Western governments and the ICC and the UN would accept that Israel is no longer what it what it is today, and it's a new state called Palestine where everyone is equal and it's. I mean, you know. We'll build towards that, you know. Right. We'll build towards that, but but um, I, I can't think of um, of that position from from a hopelessness framework. Okay, okay, fair enough. All right, so brother, I'm going to let you uh, give a fi- your final thoughts on everything from Ukraine to um, Western hypocrisy in media. Anything uh, how you want to add to um, to land this program? Yeah, I just want more people to care about. Um, you know, international causes year round. I want people to have more of a, uh, a dedicated analysis of what's going on in the world so that, you know, those of us who are immigrants from all over the world um, can feel like you care about our issues too, can feel like um, our lives also matter. We can feel like, um, 
you're actually listening to our stories. And when we immigrate to this country, we bring our stories with us. And for millions of Palestinians, we'll never forget. We'll never turn our back. Um, and it's the same for Yemenis um, who are struggling right now. It's the same for Syrians who have been struggling um, over the last couple of decades, Afghanis, and so many um, other immigrant communities. So um, let's all do better. I appreciate you, my good brother Kamara, for having me on. I hope uh, the listeners enjoy this episode. And um, let's continue to fight for a better tomorrow. Yeah, no doubt, man. I appreciate it. And, you know, we forgot to mention how, like, the United States, um, when you talk about Afghanis and Syrians, but how the United States actually actually for, has forgone their commitment to Afghans um, by freezing, like, $9.5 billion of their assets. Um, <laughs> and not, and which has actually been outlined and earmarked for them. They, you know, has simply just not giving them the money that that's owed to them. And left. They stole their money. They stole. They yeah, stole, we could say it. The U.S. government stole the Afghani people's money. They stole that money, and you know, uh, openly, and then gave no real justification for it outside of the fact we're just freezing the assets um, that had that is well deserved and that they need. Um, and so that's part of the reason too about changing the the focus on on America and, and or putting the focus back on America and how our actions have contributed to. Um, different societies around the world where they're talking about Palestinian or we're talking about Afghanistan and how, you know, disproportionate uh, viewpoint of looking at Russia and all these things of Ukraine and how, un- you know, how wrong Russia is imposing their imperialistic ideals on this particular sovereign nation. And yet the, at the same time, at the same moment, we are participating in the same form of imperialism, you know, but nobody talks about it or nobody cares because guess what? The media has not framed us as the bad guy. You yep. know? Yep. Um, so, you know, I like to end all the programs on um, a love letter to black culture. So, you know, like Dear Black Culture, um, this podcast, we addressed like a, a differing interpretations of war and conflict and how it skews the viewpoint of our world. Uh, when we mention white supremacy on this show, we are not just talking about individuals, but a system of operation and interpretation that creates an environment of two separate worlds and ideals to live by and abide in. I am here to I'm not here to be uh, uh, accusatory but simply to highlight the disparaging world we live in. Uh, my love for our culture and black culture, just people, makes it hard to ignore such glaring inconsistencies. Um, but how do we stop this? Um, by, not, by getting to the root of the issue and not ignoring uh, what's happening in front of us, but addressing what's really happening you know, to the world, to the people, to humanity, to culture. Um, to ignore is to be complicit, and uh, there's no way you can claim to love something and ignore the blatancy or the audacity of a bad actor and the pain of disruption it causes, um, that bad actor being white supremacy. Uh, so until we actually can eliminate this white supremacy in this world, we must know the rules don't always apply uniformly. Or, as the uh, great American group, um, as a great American group once said, uh, them never shying away from the root of any problem, uh, we don't have the luxury to be like them, or in other words, never do what they do. So with that being said, I'm going to ride out uh, to the next time. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we out.
generation, fast-paced nation, world population confront they frustration. The principles of true hip-hop have been forsaken. It's all contractual and about money-making. Pretend to be cats, don't seem to know they limitation. Exact replication and false representation. You want to be a man, then stand your own. To MC requires skills, I demand some show. I let the frauds keep fronting and roam like a cellular phone far from home. Giving crowds what they wanting. Official hip-hop consumption, the fifth thumping. Keeping your party jumping with an original something. Yo, I dedicate this to the one dimension now. No imagination, excuse for perpetration. My man came over and said, Joe, we thought we heard you. Joe, so you, you heard.